Well, if it's not obvious to you, I am not a runner. I am not a runner because I do not like to run. It's hard work. Those who run have uh, an extraordinary amount of self-discipline, at least I think. Those of you who try to run ever, you know how difficult it can be just to get started. And if getting started wasn't hard enough, once you start running, it's it can be difficult to begin, especially if you haven't ran in a long time. You're working new muscles and you're going to feel new aches and pains in places of your body that you are not accustomed to. And even if you've been running for a while, you, it's still difficult as there are plenty of ways that you can injure yourself, whether it's shin splints or, or blisters on your feet or a knee injury. There are plenty of reasons that we might decide we're best off not running. And if it weren't enough just to talk about all the different things that would, that would hinder us from starting and continuing in it, there's also all the rigorous activities that go along with running that don't include running itself, like eating right, getting enough sleep and rest, not to mention all the time that it takes simply to run. And if all these pains and disciplines uh, were, were thought of this morning by us, then I think we would agree that running is just a bad idea. And yet people run all the same. And why do they do it? They run because they're chasing after a reward. And the Christian life is very similar to that of a race. It is often likened to a race, and this analogy of, of a runner and a race serves us well to understand the structure, the larger structure of First Peter as well. Peter, he's writing to these exiles who themselves are like runners, like we too as exiles are like runners. And we are motivi motivated by a reward. And that's what Peter first sets out before us as exiles, is the reward of heaven. For those who continue to run the race, they will receive the unfading crown of glory. But it's not enough for us to simply run aimlessly. There are rules to this race. There are rules to our life here in exile. And so Peter lays out the rules to this race and how, that we are, how we are to conduct ourselves, how we are to live in exile. But the race is rigorous. And if the race wasn't rigorous enough, the rules make it even more difficult. And many of us are tired. Many of our knees are skid from falling down. You're running the race, but you're mocked by your wife. You're trying to submit to your husband, but your husband is cruel with his words. You're trying to live the Christian life, but temptations keep knocking you to the ground, and you think, you know what? This is too hard, and I'm done. Well, as we come near to the end of this letter, Peter gives us an encouragement for those who are weary and sore because of our exile. And his encouragement to us is to not give up, but to finish the race. I used to run. But I quit running because it was hard work. And there are many Christians who are thinking just as well of quitting, perhaps even just slowing down because they're tired. But to those who are weary from this race, look to our text this morning, starting in verse 17. Peter says, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will become what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous are scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing 
good. Our text this morning is closely linked to the previous verses, 12 through 16, that we saw last week. Remember, Peter told us to expect suffering, and not just to expect it, but to also suffer in it. And then he clarifies what he meant by saying, while we would rejoice in our suffering, make sure that we do not suffer for sin. But from our perspective here down below, it's difficult for us to, to rejoice in suffering with our skid knees, with our shin splints, with our knee injuries. From our perspective, it seems a lot better to sit on the sidelines and just watch others run. And so Peter gives us the reason behind what he said last week in our text this morning. 1 Peter 4, 17, he says, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. Here's the perspective we need here this morning. If you feel weary and if you feel like giving up, we need to know that God's judgment begins with the righteous. That is for us here this morning. If you believe in Jesus Christ, God's judgment will begin with you who are part of the household of God, who have been built up into the new temple as living stones, all a part of this, this new building that God is building on Christ. This is the insight that we get, though, from our text right away. From the very beginning, we see that, yes, we suffer persecution from the hands of wicked men, but our suffering from their hands is not just from the hands of men, but the, our suffering is a providential work from the hand of God. It is God's judgment to us. This suffering here and now that we're to rejoice in, it is God's judgment to us. We see this in the gospel itself. We know that our Lord was killed by the hands of sinful men. But we know that the cross, though was, was planned and, and, and plotted by wicked men, was also the plan of God to atone for our sins. 1 John 4.10, in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins and so to be certain yes men did plot to kill jesus but before men ever thought it in their heads to do so it was god's plan to send his son and die for his people jesus's death on the cross carried a divine purpose and so our Suffering as well, we see in our text, also carries a, a divine purpose, though it comes from the hands of man. Verse 17, it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And this judgment here comes from the hand of God. Now, this might seem strange to you this morning to think about the church being judged by God. God wouldn't be just if he would punish us for sins that were already paid for by Christ. And so what does Peter mean here when he says that we are being judged by God? That is, judgment begins with Christians, those of the households of God. We know that from Romans 8, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So we have to, to infer from that that the judgment that he has in mind here isn't a condemning judgment. Yet if this is true, why then would God judge us? You see, it's easy for us to conflate the two, judgment and condemnation. They're often even treated synonymously in our Bibles when they're translated into English. But to be clear, the judgment here that Peter is talking about is not condemnation. So what then is the judgment that, that Peter has in mind? Well, judgment is more broadly the ability for a king to make a wise judicial decision. 
consider the judgment of King Solomon for just a moment. You remember the case where those two mothers, those two women came before him, both disputing over whose child was the living child and whose child was the dead child? Both women laid claim to the one that was alive. And so King Solomon needed to make a just judgment to determine who the true mother was. And so what did he do? He put both women to the test by commanding to have this baby boy, this living child, cut in two with his sword. This was a test for the moms to reveal the true nature of who the baby belonged to. And so the true mom pleaded for her son that the king would not kill the baby, but instead give her son away to the other mom. While the other mother showed no compassion for the child. So the truth of the matter was revealed and the king made his judgment to give the child to the true mom who showed compassion. And so when all Israel heard about the judgment of the king, 1 Kings 3.28, all Israel heard of the judgment that the king had made and rendered. And they stood in awe of the king because he because they perceived that the wisdom of God was in him to do justice. So we see here, King Solomon's judgment was not a judgment of condemnation, at least not initially, not altogether. Certainly he, he did not give the, the lying mother the child that wasn't hers, but he rightly carried forth justice because he had wisdom given to him from God to have insight into the nature of this dispute between these two moms. The judgment of Solomon is but a shadow that pales in comparison to the wise and just judgment of our Lord. Romans eleven thirty three says, Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. All of God's judgments are just and good. And so we do know this, that God's judgment on the wicked will lead to their condemnation because he is a God of justice. But that judgment is yet to be seen. That judgment will be made in the final judgment. But for now, Peter tells us in verse 17, it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. All of our sufferings are like the test that Solomon gave to those two mothers that day. It's a test of God that he is sovereignly working out in our life. And it is wise judgment that he is pouring out on us even now. So then we should ask, what are his purposes in judging us, in trying us, in allowing us to suffer from the hands of wicked men? I see two purposes in the broader context of this entire letter and even in what, what Peter seems to be alluding to. The first purpose is God's judgment to purify the church. And the second purpose is God's judgment to prove your faith. So let's consider them one at a time. First, God judges the church. He allows suffering so that the church would be made pure. When Peter said that the judgment begins with the household of God, commentators agree that Peter is alluding to at least two Old Testament prophets. One of them is Ezekiel 9, 3, and 6. And so look at the, the, the picture of God's people being purified, literally like wheat and chaff being separated as the wicked are, are separated from the righteous who love God and his word. The Lord said to him, pass through the city and go to Jerusalem and put a mark on the foreheads of the men in whose sigh and groan over all the abominations that are committed in it. So these are the righteous men who hate sin. And to the others, he said, in my hearing, pass through the city 
and after him, after him, and strike. Your eye shall not spare, and your, you shall show no pity. Kill old men outright, young men and maidens, little children and women, but touch no one on whom is the mark. And begin at my sanctuary. You see where judgment begins with the household of God. It begins there at the temple. Begin at my sanctuary. And so they began with the elders who were before the house. So you see here the picture of purifying the church, purifying the sanctuary of God as as literally the righteous are spared and the wicked are, are separated for death. But we also see another image that's a bit different from Malachi chapter three. Very similar But here we see it's about purifying those who do belong to God inwardly. Listen to Malachi 3, 2 and following. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like the fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purify silver. He will purify, here it is, the sons of Levi. That's the household of God. These are the the tribes that were entrusted with keeping the temple. He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and in the former years. And so even our trials here now, though it separates the wicked from the righteous, those suffering in its own way separate the wheat from the chaff. We even know for even us who are righteous, when we get thrown into the fire of affliction, It even exposes the dross, the impurities, the unclean things even in our own life so that in our life we would be a pleasing aroma and sacrifice to the Lord as we ourselves are made more and more like Christ. So these two forms of separation happening. We know that persecution, of course, it purifies the church. We see that even in our own day as Numbers in the church dwindle more and more as becoming a Christian is less and less tolerable in our society as we are treated more and more like strangers and exiles. But also we know it's for for us, even for the righteous. It's not just to get rid of the wicked. It is for us so that even what little or much wickedness remains within, that the Lord would slowly purify us as he continues to discipline those whom he loves. And so the saints are to become more holy, which leads us to the the other purpose. Because suffering begins with the household of God, and so as we too suffer and rejoice in our suffering, we can rejoice because it proves that we belong to God. It proves our faith, our suffering does. It proves that, that we are genuine believers in God. Because it would be easy to go along with, with God's way so long as we're con- we continue to prosper and do well. But it's an affliction, it's in suffering that our faith is proved and shown. Some might say this morning, I don't need my faith proved. I know what I believe. So you might say, but understand, we are not very good judges of ourselves. Peter too, before, before Jesus died, he said he would never deny Jesus. Do you remember? And yet he would be sifted by the devil. He would be thrown into affliction and his sin there would be, put, would be put on display as he himself failed, denied his Savior, and his sin was exposed. 
so too we may make many bold claims for the Lord. But our faith must be tested and proven. We must be put through the fire to show that we are not going to be consumed by the trials here in this world, but instead we will remain faithful to God even unto death. Oh, but we do not know our hearts. We do not know what truly lies deep within. We are far more complex than we even know. Proverbs 20, verse 5 says, The purposes of a man's heart is like deep water. Understand the imagery that he's drawing there. All the different purposes of our hearts. It's submerged so far below in the depths of the blue ocean that no one can see the bottom of it. But a man of understanding will draw it out. That is the purposes of the man's heart that was once disclosed. And so God, in his wise judgment of us, is bringing forth the purposes of our heart. He is drawing out the imperfections and impurities and sins that are hidden deep inside of our hearts. Understand this. For most of my life, I thought I was a patient man. And then I started driving. And then I had kids. And it continues day by day as the Lord continues to reveal that in my heart I am not so patient. Oh, but I was patient until I was tested. It was all the trials that brought out this ugly side of me. Oh, we're so gracious with ourselves, aren't we? The reason I lost my patience was not because of anything in me, but it was all the external factors. Friends, what happens when you squeeze an orange? Does grape juice come out of it? Or when you press a grape? Is it lemon juice? Or when you juice a lemon, is it apple juice? No, what comes out of these different fruits match the very fruit that it is. So too, what happens when pressure is applied to us and we are put into the fire of affliction? Well, the Lord is drawing out the purposes of our hearts that were hidden by these deep waters. He is drawing out what was once hidden. In his wisdom, he is showing us our sin so that we might rightly see ourselves, so that we might rightly go to God and ask him for forgiveness and for help and for freedom of that which, which is inside of us. And so the Lord, he begins his judgment with that which claims to be gold, so to prove that we are in fact what we would claim to be, and so in that we can rejoice when slowly but surely he continues to show that we do, in fact, belong to him. Let's continue in our text, starting in verse 17. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will, become, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and sinner? Verse 17, as we've seen already, is an Old Testament allusion to the prophets. But here in verse 18, Peter now is quoting the Old Testament. Proverbs eleven thirty one 31 in particular. And so for just a moment, let's consider the first line in verse 18. The righteous is scarcely saved. Or you might say, as other translators say, the righteous are saved with difficulty. And the difficulty here, the scarcity of saving those who are righteous, has no, nothing to do with any lack in God's power. Ah, the Lord God, Jeremiah said, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. So understand, the difficulty in salvation is not owing to any lack in our God. There is no lack in the sufficiency of Christ's 
blood to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. No, that's not where the difficulty lies. The difficulty for those who are righteous and who are being saved is on account of all the sufferings that we have been talking about. So with that part clarified in verse 18, let's look again at the larger context of these two verses. It is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, Peter asks, what will become, what will be the outcome, excuse me, for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Both verses pose nearly identical questions. These are, these are questions asking, if we look at the righteous and see all the sufferings that God inflicts on them, if we look at the righteous and see how difficult their life is in light of the salvation that is coming their way, Peter asks, what will become what the, the, for, of the ungodly and sinner? What will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel? Well, if it isn't plain to you what the answer to these questions is already, let me make it plain to us. God's judgment will be far worse for those who are wicked. This is a rhetorical question that Peter never even answers. And he doesn't really need to answer it if we just think through the logic of the text. He's showing us that that we suffer. We who are loved by God are going to suffer from the loving hands of a father who disciplines those whom he loves. He, He loves us too much to leave us as we are. And so if we can begin to even consider all the ways in which the righteous suffer, then he continues by asking the question without giving the answer, what will happen to those who do not obey, those who are ungodly, those who are wicked? He doesn't need to explain it because because it's evident enough to us that if the righteous are scarcely saved, then the wicked will most certainly face God's wrath and condemnation. Something fascinating about what Peter's doing here, though. He doesn't even describe the horrors of hell, but rather he lets those who are suffering color the sufferings of God's judgment by looking at their own sufferings here and now. While he doesn't describe it, the Bible certainly does describe what hell is going to be like. He says, Jesus said in Matthew 9, that hell is the place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Mark, it is the place where the worm does not die and the fire is not, fire is not quenched. These brief descriptions of hell pale in comparison with the reality that is going to be experienced by all who do not believe in Jesus Christ, all who do not put their faith in him, all who continue to disobey the gospel and continue in their wickedness. Such a brief description does not fully capture it. But what words fail to capture we might color by looking at the the blood of the saints. That's what Peter's doing here. If Christians who are loved by God suffer so brutally here down below by being tortured and killed, burned and beheaded, and all kinds of other ways which they suffer, being mocked and ridiculed, if such sufferings are to be experienced by the saints who are loved and redeemed by God, then how much worse will it be by for those who are wicked enemies of God, who hate him, who mock God, who hurl insults at him, who think that God will never punish them for their deeds. If you want a clearer picture of what hell will be like, don't consider the, the sufferings of the saints, but, but look to the suffering that Christ endured there on the cross. There on the cross, 
Jesus Christ bore the full wrath of God for sinners. He, he drank the cup the drag, to the drags, to the very bottom. He, he took every bit of wrath that you and I deserved if in fact you believe in Jesus Christ. But even his sufferings there at Calvary do not quite compare to that of the suffering that will happen in hell because Jesus was infinite in holiness. Jesus himself is infinite in power. In his passion, it lasted only a, a, a few hours. And there in those hours, he paid for an eternity of sin that all of God's people would never be able to repay in every eternity in hell. But a mere man who spends 10,000 years in hell will be no more closer to satisfying the infinite wrath of God than when they first began to suffer. And so Christian, if you are tempted to give up on the Christian life, if you feel like just stepping aside, and sitting on the sidelines because the sufferings are far too great to bear, then consider this. The sufferings, the judgment of God, begin at the household of God. But if you give up now, know that the pain will be infinitely more severe if you turn to that which the world participates in. And so while the wicked begin, while well, the judgment excuse me, begins with the righteous, it does not mean that judgment will, will not be experienced by the wicked. That judgment is a future day. It is the final judgment, and it is sure to come. Because God is just, and he will not let the guilty go unpunished. And so do not give up. Know that God's judgment begins with us, but know that God's judgment will be executed against the wicked. So in drawing from these, these two questions, there's this final inference in verse 19. Peter says, Therefore, that those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. In light of the judgment that the Lord is giving you, dear ones, know that there is a far worse judgment that will be dealt against the wicked on the day of judgment. And so entrust your souls to God while doing good. Don't give up, but believe in him, put your trust in him, and continue to run the race. We've already seen that God is the one who is sovereign over all of our sufferings. That what the wicked do to us is actually truly dealt to us by the hands of a loving father as he disciplines those whom he loves. But here again, Peter picks up on this theme of the Lord's sovereignty in the midst of our suffering, saying that we are suffering according to God's will. It was his plan. It was his desire that the righteous would suffer. I know a few of the parents in here have kids that are learning to drive. And I wonder how many of you parents have ever experienced this. And if you've been not a parent, maybe you've been in the car with someone else and you are in the passenger seat and you feel like your life is in danger. And what you want to do is reach down for that brake pedal that you think is there, but isn't there. When you feel like your life is in danger there in the car and you're not in control, you want control. This is the temptation of every single one of us when we feel like we are in danger. 
here in exile because we do not trust that God is actually in control of our lives. We do not believe that he truly cares for us. And so we fail to entrust ourselves to him, but instead we take control for ourselves thinking that we know what is best. We know how to best care for our, ourselves and our families and planning for our future. So we take away the wheel from God, so to speak. We slam on the brakes and we live our life the way we think it should be lived. Understand, brothers and sisters, that, that God knows better than us. Any suffering he brings our way is, is coming from a wise king and a wise judge who knows how to discipline his children for their good. We have a God who is sovereign over everything. Yes, even the will of wicked men. Persecution, as we've talked about already, is owing to God and his sovereignty. And that might be hard for us to, to wrap our minds around, to think that somehow God would allow the wicked to, to hurt his children. But know this, he is sovereign over all. Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it wherever he wills. That means the decrees of presidents and kings are all within the hands of God. Now, of course, for us, changing the desires of any person is impossible. I wish I could change the desires of my two-year-old in the candy aisle. And that is a feat that I cannot accomplish. We would sooner be able to change the direction of a river than we would ever be able to change a person's mind. But for God, changing a man's heart is no difficult task. It's simply moving his hand. And when he moves his hand, so the heart of kings follows in suit. Our God rules over the hearts of all kings. But his sovereign rule goes further than just men here down below. His sovereignty is over Satan and all the calamities that he would cause in the world. We know that Job was a man who suffered greatly. He lost his property to enemy raids and to a great fire. He lost his children to a wind that blew over their home and crushed them all. He lost his health. But we get some insight into how all of these happened at the very beginning of Job. Job 1, 9 and following. Satan comes before the Lord. Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around his, him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. All the words of Satan to God there in this divine courtroom setting. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hands, only against him, do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord, and so all the calamities fell upon Job. Satan caused them. He caused the enemy raids. Satan caused the, the great fire to consume his, his cattle. He caused the wind to blow over the house and crush his children. He even caused Job's health to deteriorate. But understand, Job shows us here in this, this chapter, Job shows us that Satan is on a very, very short leash and he can do nothing that God does not permit him to do. And so while this can be confusing to us, 
There is also great comfort in knowing that there is no such thing as random sickness, no such thing as random winds, no such thing as random fires, no such thing as random raids. If there was anything in this life that was random, then we would be right to fear for our lives. But since our God is in control, we can rest because he knows us, he loves us, and he cares for us. So when you feel like things are spiraling out of control and you're tempted to to gain your life and have it in your control again, don't do that, but instead entrust your souls to the God who loves you and cares for you and rules over everything, including your suffering. But you might be here this morning and think that's too hard a thing to do. Such blind faith, you think, it would be absolutely foolish, and it would be foolish if it were blind faith. But it is not blind faith. We can entrust our souls to God because we know who he is. Peter continues in verse 19, Therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator. Elsewhere in scripture we see God described as faithful and we also see him referred to as the creator. But nowhere else in the Bible except for here in Peter do we see these two ideas coming together as God is called a faithful creator. So let's consider why Peter would use this title to describe our Lord. Every week we confess that we believe in God the Father, who is the maker of heaven and earth. And this this simple truth is instructive and beneficial for us in our suffering. Because as the Creator, our God knows what is best. If you want to know how to maintain your car well, then you would consult your user's manual because there, the people who designed the car tell you how to care for your car best. So too, God who made us and everything in the world knows what is best for us. And so we can entrust our souls to him because he is the creator who knows what is needful for you and me. Jesus tells us that our heavenly father knows what we need before we even ask him, Matthew 6, 8. And so when we pray, we do pray because we get to commune and talk with our God, but but we don't pray because we're informing God of anything. God knows. He knows what we need. In fact, he even knows what we need when we don't even know what to ask for, Romans 8, 26 says. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for when we do not know what to pray, as we ought, the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. So even when we do not know what to ask for, it is God himself through his spirit in our groaning, interceding for us. And if it wasn't enough for us to take confidence in knowing that we are entrusting ourselves to our creator who knows what is best, Peter tells us that he is our faithful creator. He is absolutely trustworthy. And that can only be said of him. A person, you or me, We're only faithful up and to a point. But let me go back to Proverbs 20 again. The purpose in a man's heart is like deep waters, but a man of understanding will draw it out. Who can know why we do what we actually do? Can we be trusted? Well, it continues, and I think verse 6 is very curious in light of verse 5. A man proclaims his own steadfast love, I'll tell you guys, oh yeah, I love you guys, you can trust me. But a faithful man, who can find? I speak of my steadfast love, my faithfulness and love, but, but a faithful man, 
has never been known until Jesus Christ came into the world. He alone is the one who is truly faithful to the very end. Our God, He is not just the Creator. He's not just the one who knows what's best, but He is the one who we can trust. There's no complexities about Him like there are with you and me. Our hearts, they're complex, but God is not complex in the same way. No, He does not change. He does not lie. There is nothing about Him that is due to change. He is faithful. And if you ever doubt that He is faithful, look to the cross where He showed Himself most trustworthy and true. And so Peter says, he draws us to a conclusion. But those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. What does it look like to entrust your soul to God? How does that actually work itself out in your life? It's demonstrated by those who do good. Especially for exiles who are suffering for doing good. When we do good and we suffer for it and we continue in it all the more, we demonstrate that we have a God who we have absolute confidence in, that he is a God who is faithful and true, one who is just, one who will give rewards to those who do his will, and one who will punish those who are wicked. Romans 2 says it this way, he will render to each one according to his works, to those who by practice and well-doing, seek for glory and honor and immortality. He will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Understand, though, an important thing to clarify. It is not that we are saved by works. That is not what Peter's talking about here. No, we are saved because we entrust ourselves to God who is, is faithful. We entrust ourselves to him who has promised us that he will render to each person what he is due. And so we entrust our souls to him because we know that he will keep his word and because his, he is so powerful that all his promises are yes and amen. And so brothers and sisters, we demonstrate our faith by doing what is good, even if it would mean that we would suffer for it. The Christian life is a, a life of difficulty. Jesus said it this way in Matthew 7, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. The temptation is all too real for every single one of us this morning to give up on the Christian faith to not continue to run the race and persevere to the end. The temptation for us would be to look at all the sufferings in this world because we thought the Christian life would be a life of ease. But understand this morning, brothers and sisters, the safest paths in life are the certain paths to hell. Spurgeon said it this way, a dead fish finds no difficulty in floating down the stream. It is only the living fish that can swim against the current. Brothers and sisters, are you a dead fish floating down the stream looking for what is most easy in life? 
If so, you should know that the end will be destruction. So don't grow faint-hearted, but instead continue to run the race that has been set before you. Entrust your souls to your faithful creator and look to Christ for following in his footsteps after all. He suffered by entrust- and entrusted himself to the will of God in his suffering. But know this, though his sufferings were severe, he is alive and we will live with him. Let's pray. Father, I do pray that you would reveal to us the hidden depths of our hearts that we do not see. Lord, in all the sufferings that we've experienced in the the last week and even this morning, Lord, you have shown us that we still have much sin. And Lord, we thank you that you continue to purify us. You continue to conform us more and more into the image of Christ. And so until that work is complete, Lord, would you continue to strengthen us so that we might endure in the strength that you supply. Lord, we cannot do it apart from you. And so, Lord, would you teach us the wisdom that Peter has here in these few verses. Lord, teach us to fear you and the wrath that you will pour against those who are ungodly. But Lord, even more than this, give us great courage and strength in the face of all suffering so to, as to continue in doing good, even if it would mean that we would suffer. Lord, we trust you. We know that you are faithful. We know that you are powerful, and we know that you will complete the work that you have began in us. And so, Lord, would you strengthen us to that end and glorify yourself in our lives, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.